Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 282. Your kids are going to love it. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, his dream is to start a shark tank for kids without the crazy Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here. Thank you so much for joining me in this session of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Appreciate your time today. We've got a really exciting interview with an amazing woman who is part of a team over at rebelgirls.co. You may have heard that before. Maybe you've heard of a book called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Maybe you've seen it when you've walked into a Barnes & Noble or just all over the internet or making headlines because of their amazing Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns. And we're gonna be speaking with Francesca Cavallo, one of the co-founders over at rebelgirls.co and also Timbuktu Magazine, which you'll hear about. And you know how sometimes when you see these things come on board in the world and they just come out of nowhere, you're like, wow, what an amazing overnight success story that is. And of course, there's such an amazing message to go along with the Rebel Girls stories and who it's for. But when you hear just all that was put into this and just how much actually they relied on these Kickstarter campaigns to actually keep their company afloat, uh, you'll hear that this is, this is definitely not an overnight success story, actually far from that. So I'm not gonna make you wait anymore. Here we go. This is Francesca Cavallo from rebelgirls.co. Here we go. Hey, everybody, what's up? Pat Flynn here. I'm so excited to welcome Francesca Cavallo, one of the authors of Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, an amazing success story that I cannot wait to unpack. Francesca, thank you so much for being on the show with me uh, today. Hello, Pat. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate your time because I know you and your uh, teammates there are very, very busy, Patricia and Elena as well. And I cannot wait to learn about how this all got started. So before we get into Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, I'd love to know before that happened, Francesca, what uh, what was life like for you? What, what were you doing? Well, uh, Elena Favilli, uh, who is my uh, life and my business partner, and I have, have moved from Italy, which is our home country, mm -hmm. to California in 2012 to co-found Timbuktu Labs 
which is uh, our children's media startup. And uh, we moved to San Francisco to look for funding. We got uh, accepted into 500 startups and uh, started building our company there. And we started by from digital media. We created the first iPad, iPad magazine for children on the market when the iPad came out, Timbuktu magazine. And then we created a number of other mobile apps for, for kids. And But after a while, you know, the, the app market uh, began um, to show that it wasn't the promise that, mm-hmm. that we all thought it would be. Uh, so we started wondering how we could um, fulfill our mission of creating more products that could inspire children to use their imagination to know the world in uh, other media uh, other than apps, I mean. So we started experimenting with books and we took the IP that we had created for our 12 um, mobile apps and we worked with a traditional publisher to create a first series of six uh, picture books for, for kids. And that was an interesting experience where we learned a lot, uh, but it was also not as successful and as rewarding as we had hoped it would be. So we, but we understood that we really liked uh, making paper books. So we started to f- try and find other ways other than the traditional publishing deal to create uh, innovative books for for children. Mm -hmm. I love this because it goes all the way back to, you said 2012, you said it it kind of started Timbuktu Labs. Yeah, we don't yes. even we don't even realize that often when we see success stories like this. We don't we don't we think of this as like an overnight success, but I can obviously tell this this was a journey for you and a long process and a, and a lot of learning along the way. I'm curious bef- before we get even in, into good night stories, um, like what was the inspiration to to kind of focus on children to begin with uh, as you were getting into the sort of electronic media? Um, it was a combination of things. Uh, of different things for me and Elena. Elena, uh, yeah, who is the, by the way, she's the CEO of Timbuktu. She was incredibly passionate about uh, picture books, which, um, you know, is a very important tradition in Italy and France. And she had worked uh, as a journalist and she had worked with small uh, publishing houses that were doing uh, incredibly high quality uh, picture books for children. And at the time, I was a stage director. And in between tours, I was uh, teaching uh, acting to children whose parents wanted them to become professional actors. And I had find this uh, ethically uh, challenging (laughs) (laughs) because I had learned that many times my role was to kind of steer the kind of conversations that parents were having with their kids Mm -hmm. about the future, about the world. And uh, this was not something that I had expected. So Ellen and I found that we were coming from different places, but very interesting, interested in creating products that could help uh, parents have meaningful conversations with their kids uh, about the world, about what was happening around them. And that is why the, our first idea, uh, the idea of Timbuktu magazine as a news magazine, an interactive news magazine for children came up and we started working on that. And it with really with the goal of, um, 
creating interactive stories that could make uh, learning about the world uh, enticing for for kids I and for that. the parents. Yeah, I love that. That that's that's the beauty of this book. It starts conversations. Absolutely. What were some of the challenges related to the digital stuff, the uh, electronic magazine? What, why kind of, if you can get into more detail, break away from that and go more toward paperback? Yeah, sure. So, well, um, one of the challenges that wasn't specific to us, but to um, basically all of the uh, app developers that were uh, specialized in uh, children products, was that uh, the App Store set increasingly uh, tougher limitations for uh, monetizations on monetization on uh, children's apps, mm. which is very cool on one side uh, because, you know, there were cases where parents were uh, concerned that their kids could spend too much money on the app store. But on the other side, by uh, progressively impoverishing the uh, industry of uh, children's app developers, what happened was that basically children started to uh, use apps that were marketed to grown-ups. So they were still exposed to the kind of uh, uh, gambling behavior mm -hmm. that some of these apps uh, enable, but um, that simply because those apps were not uh, specifically designed and marketed for children, they were allowed to do things that other app developers could not do. Because our apps were specifically designed for and marketed to children, we had we faced a lot of limitations in terms of the analytics, in terms of the monetization strategy. And so that was one of the problems. The other one was that um, the app store is very strict in terms of what they decide to feature. And uh, it is very hard, uh, borderline impossible, I would say, to kind of have any possibility to rely on uh, any relationships or, you know, mm -hmm. if, if somehow the editorial team doesn't think that your app is the coolest in that week, you're, you spend months, maybe years on an app and then you are uh, stuck because uh, there is no way that uh, people are going to discover your, your work. And we had, and the other thing is that because of the struggles with monetization, despite the fact that we had a user base of about 2 million uh, people um, all around the world, and we won a lot of awards for the design of our products, but uh, it was still very hard to, to monetize what we were doing. I would say that to these um, external obstacles, um, the increasing body of evidence that screen time is not very good for kids is something that kind of discouraged us from um, keeping on trying to get a breakthrough in the app store because we started questioning uh, what we were doing and if... Uh, we wanted to play a game where basically we had to find a smart way to circumvent the limitation and uh, make kids spend money on our apps. That was ethically challenging for us. So we, we, and it wasn't part of the reason why we were working so hard to build, to build our company. So we understood that uh, remaining in the app space would bring us in a direction where we didn't want to go. But we still wanted to create inspiring products for children. So we, we thought, what, um, what can we do using the competence, the, the skills and the, the competencies that we built over the past years 
to um, to create a product that can be appealing with a very clear business model and uh, that can be inspiring without uh, you know um, making children's uh, children addicted to what to, to what we are we are designing and of course I mean books are a very simple thing <laughs> that we could apply this to uh, and it was very very interesting because we we came to work on books but from a very digital perspective, which is extremely rare in publishing. And that allowed us to use all the experience that we had in uh, user experience design and in uh, designing funnels. But instead of applying all of that knowledge on the actual product, we applied it on the, on the journey of the user to discover our products. And that was a uh, bomb. <laughs> Can you can you expand on that? Like, what what does that mean exactly? How are you? Like, what were some examples? Well, we knew from our days in the App Store that it was very important to create a community before launching an app. Mm. We had learned early on that uh, launch to launch an app and pray that people will discover it uh, <laughs> didn't work. Right. So we knew that uh, before publishing uh, uh, a book, uh, our first book, a uh, paper book as publisher, we needed to make sure that there was a community that was interested in using the book. We had learned early on the concept of rapid iteration, for example. So testing sketches with people, the, the, the quickest um, prototype that you can build, starting getting feedback very early on, which is another thing that which is extremely rare in publishing because usually authors are very wary of, of sharing any portion of their work before having completed the book. Um, another thing is that we we'll, we had learned a lot about um, uh, building a network of uh, illustrators from all over the world, which then became part of the of of, uh, of Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, and uh, we knew how to think uh, in terms of digital. Uh, Adver- like advertising, Facebook advertising in a way that most publishers uh, don't because usually the, 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 the traditional publishing model is that you have a gazillion of titles and uh, you hope that one of them will fly. Mm. And that means that you usually don't have a huge budget to spend on the marketing of one single book. And uh, we... we but in, we were in a position where we, this was our first book and we needed this book to work because if it didn't work, it, in, it meant that we needed to close our company. <laughs> so we were like, okay, let's try to make, to make this right and let's try to build a community first. We did giveaways, we used a mailing list and we built a specific mailing list of parents who could be interested in, interested in uh, girls' empowerment. And then we started uh, sending emails to them and we started prototyping early because we would send them a story a week about uh, an, incre- an, incredible in- an incredibly inspiring woman that they could share with their children at the dinner table. And then we would receive feedback from them on that story and we would fine tune the style of the story. After a few weeks, we, we created a, a book proposal on a Google Doc very simple, and we asked uh, our list uh, if they would buy it. Um, we said, we want to make this book. If we make it, will you buy it, and would you be able to put 
uh, $35 upfront to buy this book. And uh, 5% of our list put the money upfront just based on a very ugly Google Doc with a few pictures and uh, the description of the book. Love it. And 5% we knew from our digital days that was a, an interesting <laughs> uh, conversion rate. I mean, it, it may seem very small, but it's actually a very good conversion rate, especially for a product that doesn't exist yet. Right. right. So we thought, okay, this sounds like uh, a perfect uh, product that we could take to Kickstarter. We had been thinking about Kickstarter for uh, quite some time, but we hadn't found yet uh, the right product, I guess. Mm. But when this, this idea, the idea of Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls came about and we had started seeing that people were giving us great feedback and that they started giving us money for it, we said, okay, we, we have to uh, create uh, some momentum and uh, build a campaign and see if uh, we can actually, mm, you know, turn this into something big. And big it did go. And I love everything you said there. I'm, I'm glad we unpacked that. You said you built a community beforehand. You created prototypes. You started sharing early versions of it with people to get feedback. And that, you're right, is totally not traditional um, you built the network of illustrators, you've done advertising digitally and have even honed down specific kinds of people in your audience through, um, through, you know, the email list that you've been building. Um, you've been running giveaways and this is all even before the, the book was out. And then finally you had mentioned and, and touched on validation and, uh, had sent emails out, created your, essentially your prototype for your book, sent it out, got payments up front. And uh, you had more than anything the motivation to make sure and do whatever it took to make this work, and so um, that that's a that's a wonderful story. So, okay, you 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 get the validation from your audience, and you get a little bit of money at front, obviously, because you've you've asked them to pay, which is the only way to really truly know if it's something that they want. Um, yeah. What happened? Like, go, go through the timeline. Then, how how soon from that point? And, and what did you do until the first day that you launched on Kickstarter? Kickstarter? So we were, uh, so I, I wanted to specify something that I think may be very interested, interesting Please. for your audience, uh, you. which is that uh, by this point, uh, this was our last attempt at, at making our company work. We had $8,000 in our bank account and we were like, okay, this thing will make us or break us. <laughs> Wow. So I, 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 I always like to, you know, uh, specify this because a lot of people think, oh, I don't have the money to do a Kickstarter campaign. We didn't have any money. And it, this simply meant that it took us more, a little more time mm -hmm. to put together a very beautiful campaign. But it was just the two of us uh, at, by that point because we didn't have a team anymore. We had to let people go because our previous model wasn't working. And we just uh, sat at the table and we said, okay, let's try this one last thing. And if it doesn't work, we will figure something out. Mm. So uh, just to give you the context. And perhaps this sense of urgency uh, paired with the fact that we really, as female entrepreneurs, we really, really believed in the idea of inspiring more girls to be more uh to have more confidence in themselves and uh, to grow up surrounded by more female role models. 
gave us the strength to uh, make a plan. We worked on the Kickstarter campaign for about three months uh, on top of the six months before when we had worked on the community. So, uh, and uh, the most crucial part of putting together the Kickstarter campaign was the script of the video. Um, we talk to a lot of people every day that are working on Kickstarter campaigns and uh, uh, they, most of them think that uh, the shooting will be the most important part. But I, we always say if, if you have $10, put $9 on the script and $1 on the shooting. <laughs> nice. Uh, because to get the messaging right and uh, to make sure, that, first of all, that people understand what you are uh, proposing <laughs> mm. and then to make your passion shine in a very authentic way. And given the theme of female empowerment, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to adjust the messaging so that it didn't sound like it came from a place of uh, anger or, you know, negative feelings, which of course, I mean, if you are a woman in tech, there is part of, part of that uh, is there, you know, there is anger, sometimes there is a, uh, a, a strong desire for the current situation to change. But because this is a book for kids, we wanted to make sure we, we went right at the heart of why this was an important, inspiring and constructive way for us to um, create a better world. So to fine tune the messaging took 13 drafts of the script. Uh, we worked on it, we fine tuned it. And then when we, we shot it with, uh, with an iPhone. So that was very, the only, uh, investment that we made was in a, in a microphone. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this, oh, actually no, in the first campaign, we didn't even have a microphone. It was an, an iPhone and that was it. Uh, in the second campaign, we invested in a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah I, I mean our resources were very limited we didn't have any money to run advertising for the first campaign so what we did was we knew that media was going to be important so we researched all the campaigns that before us had had uh, some similar themes and we looked for journalists who had covered those campaigns so basically, instead of trying to get our hands on those huge lists of PR that you never know who you're going to email, mm -hmm. we wanted to have maybe less email addresses, like even as little as 50 to 100, but we wanted them to be highly targeted so that we had a, a, a bigger chance for these people to actually be interested in what we were pitching to them. And so we looked for people, we compiled a list of people who had written about uh, similar topics and about Kickstarter campaigns, because a lot of journalists don't cover Kickstarter. This is also something that creators often don't understand. Uh, so you have to find the sweet spot of people that are not only interested in our case in female empowerment, but that also cover covered Kickstarter campaigns before. Um, when we found those, uh, those um, uh, journalists, we, we started to email them one week before the launch of the campaign because we wanted to try and build a relationship. We wanted to give them a heads up and possibly to find someone who would cover the campaign on the launch date. Mm -hmm. 
and then we we had a lot of uh, you know small tweaks. We installed um, 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 a plugin in our Gmail accounts uh, called Follow Up, which uh, basically uh, told us every time uh, one of the journalists who whom, uh, we had emailed open our email so that we knew even if they hadn't responded we knew that uh, the, the email had been opened mm-hmm. so we would email them again and again up to five times before letting it go <laughs> so we were very very persistent and this was crucial to get the initial press coverage for for the campaign the other thing the only marketing thing that we did was we mm, we bought um uh, an email on a on a on a, on a newsletter of moms with whom we had collaborated before for the launch of one of our apps. So we knew that they were reliable. We knew that they had a highly targeted audience, and uh, we asked them to feature us in our news in their newsletter the day of the launch. Uh, the newsletter is called Aparu. In case some of uh, some of, uh, of you is, are interested in the same market. And that was a very, very powerful uh, thing. The other thing that we did was uh, we ran a campaign on Thunderclap. Mm-hmm. So we basically privately messaged all of, all of our friends and friends of friends, asking them to, to support us on Thunderclap so that the day of the launch, the moment we hit the launch button on Kickstarter, lots of people would tweet or share on Facebook a post about our campaign does generate in some kind of uh, social media storm. That was very, very powerful. And uh, in fact, we did it again for the campaign number two for even bigger uh, results. Uh, we, we launched the campaign with a goal of $40,000, which was the bare minimum that we would need to print the first thousand copies of the book with the secret goal of becoming the most crowdfunded children's book on Kickstarter. This was our secret goal, (laughs) which would require us to uh, raise $360,000. But in fact, we closed the campaign with double that amount of money. Well, congratulations. I'm seeing it. It's a $675,000, Yes, yes. Becoming the most crowdfunded book of, uh, of all times. So that was a very nice uh, rec- record that that we broke. And that, of course, gave us even more uh, press coverage. Of course. Well, congratulations, uh, Francesca, to you and Elena for that uh, success. What, what did it feel like to see all the support for it and to see those numbers climb every day until the, until the close? We cried. <laughs> I remember the first day. When uh, we saw that, you know, you, you hit the launch button and you really don't know. We had worked a lot. And as I said, the stakes were very high. And you don't know if all the things that you did are going to work because that was the first time that we launched a, a Kickstarter campaign. So we, we hit the button launch and we, we saw the contribution starting to arrive. And I remember that when uh, we reached, I think it was uh, 30% of the funding goal in the first uh, six hours, something like that, uh, we, we hugged each other and we cried. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why, because you knew so you had something special on board. And 
Yes. It has become very special for, for a lot of people. And I'm now seeing it in bookstores. You know, I take my kids to the, to the bookstore and I see it there displayed right, right front and center. And so it's just amazing to now know where it came from. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is a, this is a self-published book. Is that, is that true? Yes, that is true. And so we, we, well, when we started we because as I said before, we had a less than ideal experience with, uh, with a traditional publisher publishing deal, we wanted to try something different. So that is why we went, we turned to Kickstarter as opposed to go to a publisher and ask them to, you know, to buy our our idea for for the book, mm-hmm. so that was the, the um, we wanted. The, then later we realized when uh, that something that we did that we had not expected when the book started to be very strong on Kickstarter, like raising more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. We started receiving calls from literary agents and publishers which is something that we really hadn't thought about. But the more we, you know, the more we moved forward, the more it was clear that uh, we were able to do this thing without uh, a publisher. So we kind of, um, we said, we think we can do it. And it, it, it was it was a very exciting because it was like the nature of the content so a, a book of uh, rebel goodnight stories uh, matched the nature of the production, which was right. very rebel as well. And um, and then when when so we we started working on the book, and we that was uh, you know we were on the heels of this crazy successful Kickstarter campaign, and then we uh, transitioned the campaign on Indiegogo and basically doubled the money that we had raised on Kickstarter. And, but at that point, we really kind of uh, said, okay, now we, we have to not disappoint our backers. So we, we, we left the campaign go and uh, we stopped taking interviews and we focused on the creation of the book. We said a lot of no's to, you know, very, very important people that wanted to talk to us about movies, about, you know, all sorts of these things that are very flattering, but we felt were distracting from, because at that point, so many thousand people had put their trust in us and we didn't want to disappoint them. So we worked on the book and which went to print. Uh, we found a, a, a printer in Canada and uh, the book went to print and we kept receiving huge offers from uh, very, very important publishers. At one point, we turned down $1 million from one of the biggest U.S. publishers. Wow. And we were like, we think, I mean, we've already said at that point, we, have, we had already sold $1.2 million in books. So we were like, why should we you know, sell this, even for $1 million, why should we sell this book to a, to a publisher? We're, we're already doing this ourselves and it looks like we've done all the heavy lifting already. So uh, this was a very, very, you know, a defining moment for us because what um, we were told 
by people who had way more experience than us in the publishing world was uh, you should do the deal because you will never become a New York Times bestseller if you don't. So, you know, when I see this week that we are number four in New York Times bestseller <laughs> for the sixth week in a row. So good. It's kind of, you know, and to see Timbuktu Labs, the name of our company as the publisher of this book, it's, it's very, very rewarding because we kept believing that we could do it and uh, we kept, you know, working every day and focusing on what was, uh, you know, super important. We spent the whole month of December, uh, I remember, like, for Christmas, answering frantically mm-hmm. customer service replies because we didn't, we didn't have a customer service team yet at the time so but but we but we did it and not only did we not sign a publishing deal but we didn't even sign a distribution deal so we then we were like a company of at the time we're like four or five people shipping out 40,000 books a month (laughs) so there was uh you know it was an incredibly powerful because no one thought uh, what we were doing was uh, possible. And they kept telling us that what we were doing was impossible and we were like, but we're doing it. So it, it shouldn't be, I mean, <laughs> it's not impossible because it, it is what we're doing. So for the next version of the book, you're going to have a picture of yourself and Elena as one of the stories, right? No, we, we, <laughs> uh, we are not because, you know, we always feel it's very, one of the, you know, most rewarding feeling feelings for us is uh, that there is a, a little piece of us in uh, each of these stories. And to, I, I would say that I would argue that to work in company of uh, such powerful examples of uh, strength and resilience and uh, self-confidence is, was a, a very crucial component of uh, giving us the the, the needed confidence to believe that we could build this project in a different way. Love that. Okay, so you did a Kickstarter campaign. You raised you know $675,000 there. And then what made you decide to then, then do another crowdfunding campaign for Indiegogo, uh, which, like you said, raised double that, so 1.2 on there? Because at that point, uh, we had done the Kickstarter uh, campaign, but we didn't have an e-commerce website so when we knew that we had driven a lot of momentum on the Kickstarter page and we didn't want to kind of shut it down when the 30th day of the campaign came. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to be able to kind of keep the momentum going. And uh, at that point, uh, In Demand had been acquired by Indiegogo and they gave Kickstarter uh, creators the possibility to keep raising funds on the Indiegogo platform. Uh, so that was for us the, you know, it was very um, easy an easy setup. It was very easy to import the campaign there. And Indiegogo also helped us tremendously with, uh, email campaigns and featuring us on the homepage. So they really did a great job, uh, uh, helping us maintain the momentum that we had built with the Kickstarter campaign. That's fantastic. Did you, did you use the same video or, or did you use a different one? No, it was the same video. Same video. And then I yeah. see a couple other videos where you and I think your partner are here um, talking about, or that maybe these are just updates during the uh, during the campaign, but um, 
You said the only difference was really you had a microphone this time. <laughs> yeah, well, that that was the campaign for Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls 2, mm-hmm. which we did this year, and um, and which raised uh, $863,000 in uh, 29 days. So we did, a, we did a second campaign for Volume 2, and uh, it, with a funding goal this time of uh, $100,000, which we reached in the first three hours of the campaign. Amazing. Well, tell us what's next for for you and Elena and your team. Um, well, right now we are uh, twelve people, and um, we are working to build an organization that embodies the same values uh, as the book. So, diversity, uh, mutual respect, openness. And, um, and so that, that is a very exciting part, uh, of, and, and, you know, it, it, it's a very, uh, exciting, uh, benefit of having kept the book, uh, as, a you know, to having kept being the publishers of the book. Mm-hmm. And we see this book as the, uh, the, the first two books of good night stories for rebel girls as a, the stepping stone of a, of a bigger series. Uh, designed to inspire uh, girls and women all over the world to dream bigger, aim higher, and fight harder, as we say in the first page of the book number one. Love that. Now, you had mentioned earlier that there was potentially movie deals or shows or things outside of the book world. Is that something that you you never are going to do, or is it just you kind of put that aside because you wanted to focus on the book and the distribution uh, first. Is that, is that going to be a possibility down the road for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We see this as a full-fledged uh, media company. So we we produced uh, so far uh, some a short series of videos on, on our Facebook page, Rebel Girls, mm-hmm. and uh, we have more than 100 million visualization with the first three videos that we made. So we're definitely interested in uh, video uh, production and uh, we'll, we'll not just create, uh, we'll keep uh, not creating just books, but also other media. In fact, the second campaign that we launched uh, a few months ago was for volume two of Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls and Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, the podcast. Nice. So uh, as soon as we finish uh, working on volume two, and we send that to press. We will start working on uh, on a podcast. So we we really see this as a you know um, a multimedia approach to uh, create different kinds of content that can uh, uh, make more and more women grow up uh, surrounded by inspiring female role models, and that can feel truly empowered and uh, respected for who they are and what they want to become. Well, thank you, Francesca, for what you do and what you've done and what you're going to do and Elena as well and the rest of your team. Where would you recommend all the listeners out there go to continue to support what you do? Um, On our website, which is www.rebelgirls.co. Rebelgirls.co. And we'll be able to see sort of the latest developments there? Yes, absolutely. All right. Fantastic. Francesca, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've been uh, super busy with all of this and have a lot more books to send out and all that stuff. So uh, I appreciate you so much and I look forward to uh, doing whatever I can personally to support you in, in the cause. It's just amazing what you've done. And uh, you've I've already know after speaking with you here, you've inspired tens of thousands of people 
uh, with with this last half hour. So I, pr- I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pat. It was great to uh, talk to you. You as well. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoy that interview with Francesca over at rebelgirls.co. And Elena, thank you so much. I'm sorry you couldn't be on today as well, but um, just congratulations to you both. We'll put links to the books and your upcoming campaign for Rebel Girls 2 on the show notes. You can all find that at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 282. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 282. You can go to the same link as well if you want to leave any comments. And I'm just incredibly excited and and just honored that, uh, Francesca, you came on to share your story with us today. So thank you so much. I'm inspired. I hope those of you listening are inspired as well. And uh, look out for next week's episode. Subscribe if you haven't already so you can get that automatically uploaded to you. And I'm just looking forward to serving you in the next episode. Thank you all for the support. I appreciate you. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it, and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.